Please help me to welcome Jay Richards. Thank you. Thanks so much, Emily. This book, The Hobbit Party, is a book that I, I co-wrote with actually a childhood friend, a guy named Jonathan Witt. And, and uh, Jonathan, actually, his PhD is in literary criticism. Uh, my background is philosophy and theology, and so, of course, I write mainly on economics. And so this is the, uh, a, a sort of joint effort of ours, but it's also a labor of love because Jonathan Witt and I were Tolkien geeks as kids. Um, and, of course, we were reading Tolkien decades before the, the thought of Hollywood movies uh, had entered our minds. And so, you know, I grew, grew up in a town called Amarillo, Texas, mid-sized conservative Texas town. There weren't a whole lot of readers of Tolkien that I can recall at the time, but Jonathan and I were two Tolkien readers, and so we had read it, of course, just as, as readers and children initially, and then returned to Tolkien later in life. And I honestly returned to him uh, after the first Lord of the Rings came out uh, in, uh, what was that, 2001, The Fellowship of the Ring, and thought, you know, I had to read this again. And so I started reading Tolkien again, and then I started reading the secondary literature on Tolkien, that is, the books written about Tolkien by other authors. And what I discovered is that a lot of people, ever since The Lord of the Rings came out in 1954 and 55, have tried to claim Tolkien for ideas, for political causes, uh, ideological causes, that Tolkien himself would have vigorously disagreed with. Um, and I thought, well, this is sort of an odd state of affairs. Uh, I'm an adult convert to Catholicism, and so his sort of the, the Catholic roots of his thought became very important to me. And the longer this went on, Jonathan Witt and I, we just talked about it. He said, look, this is, a, this is sort of depressing because Tolkien's work has profound implications for all sorts of things. And there have been a lot of terrific books written on his, essentially his theological and philosophical thought, on the, uh, the kind of latent Catholic theology that's embedded in the literature. But no one had actually written an entire book just on Tolkien's political and economic thought, or to put it more precisely, on the political and economic implications of his thought, and especially of his fiction. Now, there have been a lot, as I said, a lot of things written about this, but they're mostly articles in books, in, in academic journals, one chapter in a book, something like that. Uh, but no one had really given this a, sustain, a sustained treatment. And since Jonathan Witt and I had sort of interestingly complementary disciplines, we thought, well, maybe we're the guys to do this, and we're just frustrated enough that we need to do it. And frustration actually ends up being one of the prime motivators for, for getting books done. The other motivator in our case was that there was a trilogy of The Hobbit coming out, right? Um, and so we, we got together and said, you know, it would be really lame if we've been wanting to do this for years and we can't manage to get this book out before the third Hobbit movie comes out. <laughs> and so that was sort of the motivation. And so Ignatius worked with us very well, and it worked out. So the book finally came out in October just in time for the third movie. But of course, we couldn't. Uh, we had seen the first two, but we didn't know what was going to happen in the third Hobbit. So when, if you read the book, what we tried to do is write it for, uh, for the person, both the person that's a Tolkien aficionado, that in fact might know the secondary literature on the one hand, or the person that's just interested in Tolkien. Maybe has read all the books, maybe read The Hobbit, but not The Lord of the Rings. And so what we do in the book is we actually start chronologically. So we start uh, after a brief introduction of who Tolkien the man is with The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings, and we treat it chronologically so that if you haven't read the books, you haven't read them in a long time, or if you've seen the movies and haven't read the books in a long time and have forgotten what's actually in the books, uh, right? There's a lot of people that are in that category. 
Um, we, we thought, you know, we're going to sort of give, give that to the reader. So it, it starts out chronologically, and then uh, we eventually sort of break out into topical treatment. So there's a, there's a book on Tolkien's, un, or a chapter on his understanding of love and death. There's a chapter on his understanding of war and these sorts of things. And so it's a, a sort of mix of chronological uh, and, and topical in its structure. Um, so the question is, why would we think we could be justified in taking this guy, Tolkien, that was not a political thinker, he was not a philosopher, right? He was not an economist, and to talk about his political and economic thought. Is that not already kind of a strange thing to do? And so my computer, normally what I do, because I don't, I don't use notes, and so I normally look at my computer, but as you can see, my computer is way back there, <laughs> and so I can't quite see it. So I actually have some notes on paper, but I'm not sort of used to using that. So if you wonder why I seem so awkward with this clicker, that's going to be what it is. So let's just talk about Tolkien the man uh, for, a, for a minute. I suspect those of you that are here, here this is a kind of there's a selection effect, right? Where the people in the room probably already know a little bit about Tolkien, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But most of you know that he was a professor essentially from the, the 20s, uh, into the 50s or 60s uh, at Oxford University. He was a professor of philology, which is a, essentially the study of the sort of evolutionary history of language. And it's not even exactly a discipline anymore. It's been displaced in many ways by English literature on the one hand and linguistics on the other. But in the middle of the 20th century, there was a, or a group of, of, of philologists who were quite convinced that given the, me the methods of the discipline, they could sort of trace and figure out uh, the origins of words, such that if you had, for instance, p current words, and you could compare words in, in uh, present-day Finnish and Swedish and English and German, you could actually deduce what the root word of those words was, even if you, there's no existing word. And so in some ways, it's kind of like, though I would say it's actually much more rigorous than the kind of Darwinian process in which you look at the sort of various flora and fauna and you postulate a, a common ancestor to all of them, even though you don't have any data for it. But that's, that's the kind of idea. But there were sort of really serious methods of philology and ways of doing this. And so as a result, for Tolkien, language was sort of everything. And in fact, the way he got into writing fiction was essentially as a speculative exercise on words. Now, there's no one way in which people write creative fiction, certainly no one way in which people write fantasy, but Tolkien literally would take a particular word, he would think of a character, he would construct a name that made some sense etymologically, and then he would sort of spin out a story based on the person's name. What would an appropriate story be given the person's name? It's a very unusual way of writing. But Tolkien was already doing this as early as 1916, when he was in the trenches of World War I at the Battle of the Somme. He was, he was writing things down on scraps, things that later become this, became this vast legendarium called the Silmarillion. So he was a professor of philology, had a very prestigious uh, uh, chair at, at Magdalen College, Oxford. Most people know he was a, a close friend, uh, certainly early in his career with C.S. Lewis, and played a role in C.S. Lewis's, con major role in C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity. But what most people know him for now, of course, is these fantasy books. The, the Hobbit, which was published in 1937, and then after The Hobbit became a sort of minor success, um, he, his publisher said, you know, let, why don't you do a sequel for this? Well, Tolkien had been fiddling around with this complex uh, legendarium, just the, this vast sort of uh, series of myths and stories 
that he was writing, what we now call the Silmarillion. But what this essentially was, was his attempt to create a mythology for the English-speaking people. He always regretted the Norman conquest and at least partial displacement of the Normans uh, and the displacement of the, the Angles. From, that's why we talk about English. And so most of their writing, most of their history uh, has just disappeared. We don't really have access to that. And so Tolkien, using the methods of philology and a bit of speculation, wanted to create a mythology so that the English-speaking peoples would have a mythology much like the Romans, the Italians, or the Greeks, that sort of thing. So that was the idea, and that's what the Cimmerillion became. Well, he wrote The Hobbit. It's a minor success. It's an easy book. I'm sure most of you have read it. It's, not, it's a children's book. Um, it's easy to read. And so its publisher was wanting uh, a, a sequel. And so Tolkien, not really thinking about the market, right? These books weren't really written w for market consideration. They were written really for his own, his own pleasure. He submitted a bunch of the stuff that was the Cimmerillion. And I can, I'm sorry that we don't have this on video. I can imagine what the editor was probably doing. He's like, what is this stuff? And so he said, no, no, thank you. Uh, we want a sequel. We want actual stories that people can follow and those kinds of things. So because of that, because of the rejection of the Silmarillion, he started to work on the Lord of the Rings. And the stories of the Lord of the Rings, though they're embedded in these, these sort of wider mythology, are new stories that he had not anticipated when he wrote The Hobbit. So if you have read The Lord of the Rings, you go back and you read The Hobbit, look at what the ring is like. The ring doesn't have these malevolent powers, right? Uh, when Bilbo puts the ring on, he doesn't suddenly become aware of the Dark Lord Sauron or anything. It just makes him invisible. Well, that's because these sort of ideas had not been developed. And so what Tolkien did is over the years then, as he wrote The Lord of the Rings, he invested these things with more and more significance. And the sort of single thread was, of course, the Shire and the Hobbits and this idea of a ring. And in The Lord of the Rings, the ring actually becomes a main character. Although it's not a person, remember, the, the ring has a will. It has power. It wants things. It desires things. It tries to be lost. It tries to be found. It tries to get back to its maker. Uh, and so the ring becomes very significant in The Lord of the Rings in a way it was not in Hobbit. Now, a lot of people have complained about the movies, uh, the way in which uh, Peter Jackson made The Lord of the Rings, then he made The Hobbit later. And one of the main complaints about the movies is that, well, The Hobbit is a much simpler book. So one, why did he turn it into three movies? And two, why does he tie it in so much to The Lord of the Rings? Why does he add stuff that wasn't in The Hobbit originally. What's interesting is that Tolkien himself, late in his career, actually tried to go back and rewrite The Hobbit in light of The Lord of the Rings. Now, he wouldn't have called it a prequel, but he thought, you know, I should really go back and create more continuity, and so I'll rewrite The Hobbit. And he failed. He was too tired, uh, it was too late in life, and he just, he finally gave up. So whatever you think of Peter Jackson's movies in general, he's actually tried to do what Tolkien tried to do and failed. And as a movie maker, I think it actually makes perfect sense. Peter Jackson knows that hundreds of millions of people have seen the Lord of the Rings movies. Most of those people won't have read the books. And so he knew there needed to be continuity with the Hobbit movies, which came after. So they're like prequels. But a lot of the stuff, okay, he made up the, the rabbits, uh, you know, and the sled. That was totally Peter Jackson. But a lot of the details actually come from the appendices and from other places, appendices to the Lord of the Rings. So he's not just made up out of whole cloth. So... Um, so that's how Lord of the Rings was written, and then actually the Cimmerillion was not published until 1977 by his son, Christopher Tolkien. So uh, Tolkien dies, his wife dies before him by a few years, and then he dies in 1973, and his son, the executor of his estate, uh, Christopher, takes 
a bunch of these manuscripts that are sort of written notes of the Cimmerillion, including contradictory versions of the Cimmerillion. So Tolkien didn't have a sort of single authorized copy. So Christopher Tolkien had to take this library of variations and to figure out how to condense it into a sort of coherent whole. And so what the Silmarillion is, is a combination of J.R.R. Tolkien and his son Christopher Tolkien's creative genius. And so that's why the thing he'd been working on at the beginning never actually became, got published in, until after his death. So that's, that's enough about Tolkien himself. I won't spend a lot more time on it, but it is important to know that Tolkien suffered greatly at different points in his life. He lost his father, I believe when he was four. He lost his mother when he was 12. Uh, he suffered, as I said, he saw trench warfare directly from the, uh, the front in uh, the Battle of the Somme, which was in France in 1916. So he saw war at its most brutal and its most mechanized and at its most futile. The Allied forces, after months and months of shelling and trench warfare and death at the Battle of the Somme, advanced between six and eight miles. So it was almost an utterly futile battle. Hundreds of thousands of dead on both sides. And in fact, the, between the trenches, uh, you would see there'd be men, Germans and allies that would be killed but could not be recovered because it was too dangerous. And they would just, just lie there in the soil and rot. And it's generally agreed that this is where Tolkien got the idea of the dead marshes, that sort of image that was seared into his head. Well, Tolkien gets sick and he actually goes back. He's sort of lucky. He, uh, he got trench fever, he, he was sent back to England, and he convalesced in England, and then essentially had a kind of you know, lazy post on the coast for the next couple of years as the war wound down. So he had a lot of hard things happen. Instantly, two of his three best friends died in that same battle, one of them on the very first day. So he had three close friends uh, in college, and two of the three uh, were killed. So um, the suffering clearly becomes a part of his experience and becomes a part of the working of his fiction. All right, so there's, there's two things that we want to consider if we're going to say, okay, so we're going to talk a bit about the political and economic implications of his work. Now, the nice thing is we don't just have to speculate about this. We don't have to just say, well, there's this interesting fantasy work, and we're going to sort of read the tea leaves to figure out what his views were. Fortunately, he wrote correspondence. He wrote extensively. He wrote his son for years. And we have virtually all of that correspondence published. And so very often, he'll be writing to a Jesuit priest who's asking him, what did you mean by this thing in The Lord of the Rings? And Tolkien will tell him, right? This is very handy when you're writing a book like this to have the author tell you what he means. Now, any, anyone that sort of studies literary criticism knows that authors aren't always infallible when it comes to saying what they mean. In fact, authors will write creative works and then later give them uh, sort of significance, but still, my view is that the author has sort of generally privileged access to the meaning of his text if he's actually able to, to weigh in on that, all right? So that's a bit of background. So let's just talk a bit about uh, the private correspondence. He, this is, it's great because, now remember, private correspondence, the things you say to your son or to your close friend aren't always gonna be the most nuanced formulation of your idea, right? You could think of emails that you hit send and he said, ah, I sent that, you know, I wish I had deleted it, all right? And so you've got to take that into account. This is private correspondence, but nevertheless, it expresses his attitude. I wouldn't want to tease out one curmudgeonly statement that he makes about a subject from one letter to one person and build up his sort of whole theology on that. But nevertheless, I think it's, it's instructive. Um, he had a deep and abiding distrust 
and the centralization of power in general and the centralization of political power in particular. It's present as early as we can find it, and it, if anything, it got more and more and more uh, radical or rabid, depending on how you'd, you want to put it uh, later in life. Here's a, a great line that he wrote to his son, Christopher, actually sort of more later in his career, but about the time that he was writing The Lord of the Rings. This is written again to his son, Christopher. He says, my political opinions lean more and more to anarchy, philosophically understood, meaning abolition of control, not whiskered men with bombs. All right, we know exactly what he means. The most improper job of any man, even saints, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity. This is a great line, and he's, even here he qualifies. I don't mean that kind of anarchy. Essentially what he means is just a complete decentralization of control. Now, of course, Tolkien was a uh, 20th century Tory Englishman, right? So um, it would, I don't think it'd be accurate to call him a sort of American libertarian or something like that. In fact, I don't think it fits. Nevertheless, I think it, if you don't understand how deeply he distrusted central, the centralization of political power, you just won't get Tolkien. And so what's amusing is Marxist critics who've actually tried to tr take Tolkien as one of, uh, one of their own. I mean, it, it's absolutely ludicrous. He wrote also about socialism particularly. This is from a letter uh, written January the 30th of 1945. So it's the end of World War II. His son is serving. I think this is when his son Christopher is serving in the Transvaal uh, in Africa, if I remember correctly. But this, he's actually reflecting on socialism. And Tolkien wisely tended not to distinguish the various types of socialism. It's conventional wisdom now in the United States to distinguish uh, Nazism from communism, right? So one is way over on the right and one's way over on the left, except for the little detail that Nazism is national socialism, right? I mean, this is not rocket science here. They both involved a vast uh, investment of power in the hands of the state. Now, yes, one had a particular anthropology, one had a uh, particular sort of fixation on race and those kinds of things. But Tolkien essentially treated all of these uh, as more or less the same thing. Here's what he says to his son in 1945. So this is as he's, he's actually, if you read his correspondence at this point, you, he's anticipating what's going to come. Of course, uh, the allies are on the sides of, of the angel in this particular battle, but he was already anticipating what was going to happen in the UK after World War II came to an end. He said, the saints are those who have for all their imperfections never finally bowed heart and will to the world or the evil spirit in modern but not universal terms, mechanism, scientific materialism, socialism in either of its actions now at war. In either of its actions now at war. Um, he never had anything good to say about socialism. Now, I should, in all fairness, say he never had anything good to say about democracy either. Uh, and in fact, unlike G.K. Chesterton, he was not ever willing to endorse the word democracy, not because he didn't believe in uh, representative government in some sense, but because he essentially he bought Aristotle's argument that democracy ultimately leads to the tyranny of the majority and then to a dictatorship. It's, it's a slower route, perhaps, but he tended to think that even constitutional government would slowly but surely lead to some form of tyranny. And so, you know, you have to take that into consideration. He wasn't especially sanguine about Republican forms of government. In fact, he was a monarchist, right? And he gives us a vision of the sort of ideal monarchy 
at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Make of that what you will. It makes for uncomfortable reading if you're an American, because we never know what to do with monarchy, right? And, uh, the, but that's who Tolkien was. Now, what's interesting is scholars generally agree that um, when he was talking about socialism here and later, he wasn't just talking about Stalinism and Nazism, because he continued to say these things after World War II. Uh, and if you know anything about what happened in the UK after World War II, you ended up with a labor government and a kind of form of democratic socialism. So it was a type of socialism that it wasn't what I would call sort of hard socialism, it was soft socialism that, that emerged essentially from uh, Republican forms of voting, right, or parliamentary and popu popular forms of voting. And so his critique of the hard socialism that we fought, the West fought in World War II, it continued after World War II, but his focus tended uh, to, to reorient itself so that he was talking about his society as, as a, uh, as that he lived in at the moment. Now, he had really nasty things to say, for instance, about the tax rates in the UK. Because remember, he, the Lord of the Rings comes out, out in 1954-55. It's a sort of minor success. It, it doesn't become a real success until the 1960s. There's an unauthorized paperback version in, in the United States and an authorized version. And the American hippies go crazy for the stuff. And this actually makes him, he would have been a wealthy man, but for the tax rate that he was subject to. And he was really, really frustrated about it. But he was also amused that these hippies, which to, in his view had nothing in common with him, right, liked this book. And I sort of thought, you know, do they understand what they're reading and what's happening here? Um, but I actually think that this is a sign of his genius. Because though the, book, the books, as I'll point out in a minute, have profound philosophical and economic and, uh, and political implications, they also work simply as stories, as pieces of art in themselves. And so they resonate with people who have all sorts of political and theological opinions. And so I think that's actually a sign of his genius. It's not like Ayn Rand's novels, right, which are these long sermons that, you know, okay, there is a story here, but do we need 40-page speeches and things like that? It's nothing like that. And in fact, he hated those kinds of books. And so um, I think I'm actually very thankful for that because I don't think the books probably would have worked if he had put little sermons in the mouths of all the characters. All right, so at least what we could say is that he was very distrustful, trustful of the centralization of political power, and he absolutely abhorred socialism and everything he came to represent. Now here's the question, though. Those are his private correspondence. What about his novels? I mean, these are, these are fantasy books, right? I think that these are copies of all the uh, sort of original covers here, all laid out. Somebody's selling them for $1,000 on eBay, uh, <laughs> right, or something. Um, but the books are fantasy novels. So where would I get off? Where do any writers get off sort of interpreting these politically or economically? Well, Tolkien actually speaks to that because once the, when the books came out in the 50s, people immediately started treating them as allegories. So remember, this is the 1950s. President Eisenhower is the president here. Red, the Red Scare, there's the Nuclear Scare. And so immediately people started thinking, oh, the ring symbolizes the atomic bomb. That's what that is, right? And, it, and so they started making all of these detailed kind of allegorical connections. And so Tolkien quite explicitly repudiated that. In fact, he clarifies this in a in a, a sort of foreword, essentially, to a second edition in which he says, no, these books are not allegories. And he says, uh, um, I'll try to quote directly, I have cordially disliked allegory from the moment I was old enough to recognize it. So he does not like the type of literature in which there's a literal one-to-one -one correspondence of characters and events and places with things happening in real life. 
In fact, this is probably one of the reasons he didn't especially like the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a kind of a nasty, it's really, Tolkien was not all that nice to C.S. Lewis, who, the books wouldn't have ever been written if it had not been for the encouragement of C.S. Lewis, and yet Tolkien tended not to like Lewis's work. Uh, he thought the Chronicles of Narnia were kind of simple allegories. They're not. There's various allegorical elements, and we now know, if any of you have read Michael Ward, that in fact, Lewis structured the Chronicles of Narnia according to the uh, proclivities and personalities of the seven planets of the pre-Copernican world. And so it was not only richly symbolic in a way that it took 70 years to figure out, it was only loosely allegorical. Nevertheless, the fact that he didn't even like that level of allegory that's present in the Chronicles of Narnia tells you you're not going to like it uh, in The Lord of the Rings. That's good, though, because Tolkien goes on to say, I don't believe in allegory, and you shouldn't treat these books as allegory. In fact, he says, if the ring was the atomic bomb, what would happen is that the Fellowship would have gotten the ring, and they would have used it against Sauron, right? I mean, that's what happened in World War II. Makes no sense. He says, it it's not allegory. Nevertheless, the books have applicability. So in other words, they apply to current events at any particular age. But they do that precisely because they're not allegory of current events. They deal with universal themes of love and death and good and evil, and the nature of evil, the nature of war, the idea of a just war, right? friendship, solidarity, all these things are embedded in the books. And because of that, if you know how to read them, you can apply them to events of any time and place. And so that's why, in, in many ways, when you read them, you think, gosh, these could have been written yesterday. It's because they deal with those perennial and universal things that are true of the human experience. And so that's uh, what I would suggest that we do. And when you do that, when you read The Hobbit, and you read The Lord of the Rings, in light of his personal correspondence, in light of our knowledge of what he believed, his theological views, he was an Orthodox Catholic, uh, frequently attended daily mass, you, un you can actually apply the, the books, I think, very nicely. So let's just talk for a few minutes uh, about some of the themes that we talk about in the Hobbit Party. I don't want to exhaust the argument in the Hobbit Party because then that would disincentivize you from buying the book, right? So just to hopefully whet, whet your appetite a little book a bit. Well, the Shire, of course, is very, very important. It's possible to overemphasize it, but the Shire you can sort of think of as the bookends um, of both the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Now, what do I mean? Well, just think about the way the books are structured. In both the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, the books begin and end in the Shire, right? Um, the Shire, scholars generally think, is essentially Tolkien's way of introducing us, 20th and now 21st century people, into a completely alien world, a world that's sort of somehow the kind of prehistoric Earth, maybe, but different in certain ways, and so alien to us. We're not used to dwarves, we're not used to elves, we're not used to orcs and goblins. And so he took something like the Shire, which essentially looks like a sort of bucolic 19th century English village. And he takes characters, Bilbo and Frodo, which are essentially middle, upper middle class English gentlemen, right? And with all of the sort of resonances and social uh, proprieties of people of that sort that would be familiar to us, that especially be familiar to English speaking people, and uses the Shire and the Hobbits as a way of sort of introducing us to this strange world. And so that's why, uh, you know, uh, Bilbo has all these kind of very familiar things, uh, other than being small and having big furry feet. Uh, it, you know, he would have fit right in in, in a, a village in the you know, mid-19th century in England. That's sort of the function of The Hobbit and The Shire. And so Tolkien starts there, and then in both cases, right, in both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the characters go on a sort of quest. In the first one, they go on the traditional quest 
right? For gold, to kill a dragon and to get the gold, the really basic storyline, he transforms that. And in fact, he inverts it in The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings, you could think of as a quest narrative. But the quest narrative is, is always sort of this structure, is that you get a person or people that go somewhere and they're traveling and the narrative is structured in terms of the trip to try to get the thing. The Lord of the Rings is structured in which the protagonists spend all of their time trying to get rid of the thing, right? And so he sort of inverts this traditional uh, uh, story structure. But in both cases, they begin and they end with the Shire, right? In the Lord of the Rings, they begin there and then there's something that happens, right, when they, the hobbits return to the Shire. After Sauron is vanquished uh, and the hobbits are uh, uh, exit Gondor and go back to the Shire, there's a major event. There's an entire chapter that doesn't occur in the movies. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to think for a minute, if you've read the books, about what happens in both cases at the end. Because in most books, what you want is you want some harrowing event in which the hero you know, he gets the girl, or he gets the gold, or he gets the girl and the gold, or whatever, right? And then he returns home and everything's great. In both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, that's not quite what happens. Right? In The Hobbit, it's, 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 it's comedic mostly, uh, uh, rather than tragic. But nevertheless, he wasn't sort of satisfied with that. So just think a bit about the Shire. What's the Shire like? Um, you just get it sort of implicitly in The Hobbit, but in The Lord of the Rings, actually, Tolkien tells us. He has a little section about the Shire uh, and about, uh, about hobbits, right? And this is, is actually a, a great uh, painting of the Shire that captures it really, really well. But the sort of first thing you'll notice if you're thinking about it is either the small government in the Shire or the almost utter lack of government in the Shire. And Tolkien makes this explicit. He says, the Shire in those days had hardly any government. Right? There's no, apparently no kind of public school. There's no apparent taxes. There's no police force. The only thing are, the only sort of visible manifestation of the state in the Shire are these guys called sheriffs. But the sheriffs don't even wear uniforms. And all they do is spend their time getting uh, various hobbits' cattle back to their property. So, you know, cattle wander off the property lines of their owners and the sheriffs kind of shoo them back. In other words, sort of protecting the private property and the, uh, the goods of the hobbits. No uh, department of, of unmotorized transportation. There's just nothing like that. Uh, we later learn, uh, it's sort of odd, isn't it? Because there is no sort of visible government. There's no visible means of defense. What's happening? Well, we learn later uh, that Aragorn and the rangers had been secretly protecting the eastern uh, border of the Shire for millennia, for or at least for hundreds of years, but had been doing it secretly so that they never actually enter the Shire, just protected uh, the eastward flank of the Shire. And so they enjoyed uh, the sort of military power of a greater force, in this case Gondor and the, the rangers from the north, but it never actually impacts them directly. And you get the same vision at the end when you read the uh, appendix to the, to the Return of the King. It turns out that um, Aragorn, the king, w likes to come t from time to time and visit his friends, his hobbit friends in the Shire, but he never actually enters the territory of the Shire. He always stops on the border and has them come out to meet him. That's sort of Tolkien's vision, is that you would have a, t a king, a good and noble king that protects, protects his people, protects his subjects, but never in gets involved in their business otherwise. That's the sort of vision, is that you'd have, say, a f if you could imagine a federal government that protects us from uh, evil aggressors outside our borders, 
but none of us know anything about that government. We don't know their names. We don't know where they are. That's right. That's, that's utterly unimaginable, right? But that was, that was the sort of idea, and that was the vision that he had. So it was a very uh, a small government and a very free economy in the Shire. Now, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on this, and it's also important not to say, okay, I'm going to figure out Tolkien's economic views by analyzing the Shire. Because remember, if, you're gonna, if you want to sort of analyze that, you've got to look at Middle Earth as a whole. The Shire is only one society, right? And in fact, it has a kind of an internal logic that's different. If you look at the sort of the vast sweep of the, the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien is actually quite pluralistic, right? And so you have the, the, the hobbits who are sort of agrarian people, but so far as we know, they don't have smelting facilities. They don't, they don't have blacksmithing or anything like that. You've got dwarves that left to their druthers will live in caves. Right? You have elves that left to their druthers will live in the forest or in caves in forests. Right? And you have, um, you have men, some of whom like horses and live in the country, some of whom uh, like to live in giant stone cities. Right? So Tolkien has no problem with the kind of pluralistic social vision. He doesn't uh, deify the Shire. And in fact, he quite insistently says that he doesn't want people to think of the Shire as a utopia, as if in his vision, we all need to return to a sort of agrarian lifestyle or something like that. Tolkien didn't do it, right? He lived in the city of Oxford for, for all of his adult life. So on the one hand, the Shire is very important. It bookends both books. On the other, we don't want to make it sort of the entire story. So let me just focus uh, tonight mainly on The Hobbit, because there's a couple of sort of points in which people are uh, quite frequently, I think, misinterpret Tolkien. And the first one uh, is, of course, Smaug, uh, the defiler, right? Smaug the dragon who sits atop this booty. Uh, and we quote in the book several scholars who say that Smaug is, for Tolkien, the stereotypical capitalist, the greedy capitalist who sits atop his hoard of gold, right? Now, if you've studied economics very long, you realize that actually the capitalist economies don't work well if people sit on top of booty and gold, right? That's, in fact, not at all how it's supposed to work. The very nature of enterprise is risk-taking. The, the capitalist enterprise requires that there be a kind of combination of work and productivity and some consumption, but not all consumption. The capitalist has to save and to invest and put his money at work in some kind of risky endeavor in order for the process as a whole to continue. It's exactly the opposite of what Smaug does. He not only sits atop a hoard, he sits atop a hoard that doesn't even belong to him, right? This is the vast wealth of other cultures that he did not earn. He simply sort of acquired it or stole it. And now he just essentially, essentially sleeps on it and protects it, right? So this, if anything, what we're going to sort of say, okay, what, who's the sort of stereotypical character that Smaug represents? He clearly represents the sort of medieval stereotype of the miser, not the entrepreneur, not the business person. And in fact, there are sort of enterprising business people in the books that we'll talk about in a bit, but it's quite clear what Smaug is. And if you look at the dialogue, it, you, you notice it actually in the movie, but especially in the book. Um, if you had to say, is Smaug lower class, is he lower middle class, or is he upper class? He's upper class, right? In fact, his diction and his tone and the kind of subtle disdain that he has when he speaks, it's all the kind of stereotypical, unproductive, and I think in Tolkien's mind, sort of upper class. And so he is essentially an upper class miser. Uh, Peter Jackson got this. Uh, who did he pick, right, to play Smaug? 
Benedict Cumberbatch, right? He didn't get it some limey-accented guy, you know, from Liverpool. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so whatever you think, this is not a middle-class businessman that's represented in Smaug. It's a, essentially an unproductive upper-class miser who's sitting on the wealth of others unproductively. Now, this seems sort of obvious. It's painful to have to point out, but uh, he's so frequently misinterpreted as a business person, uh, it's, it's important to, to point it out. Now, there is a business person in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, or actually in The Hobbit, uh, that people often point to and say, okay, well, now this is definitely a critique of capitalism, right? Uh, this is uh, the master of Lake Town, played by Stephen Fry in the, in the Hobbit. He actually does a really good job. He's just completely disgusting in almost every way in the, in the movies. But think about the master of Lake Town. Again, he's not an entrepreneur. He's not a businessman that's creating and developing. He's, he is both the mayor, so he's the central political figure, and he's also a business person that controls the various trade and tariffs um, of, of the town. So he controls the trade and the economy, and he also controls the political structure. So he's essentially, I mean, Tolkien, it, it, I'm not saying Tolkien was thinking this explicitly, but if you wanted to characterize the Master of Lake Town, you characterize him as a crony capitalist rather than a capitalist, right? As a, in, insofar as cronyism is essentially a fusion of the state and business, either in a single institution or a single person, that's what the Master of Lake Town, I think, represents. And, and, and that's actually the image. Now, of course, in, the, in both the book and then especially in the third movie, He's also, in many ways, like the uh, uh, like Smaug, right? He collects a bunch of gold and he tries to get out uh, within an inch of his life, both in the book and in the movie. What's interesting is what happens after uh, the Battle of the Five Armies in The Hobbit. This is something that people often don't think of, and you learn more about it, again, in the appendices to The Lord of the Rings. Um, and it's mentioned briefly in the, the, the third Hobbit movie that came out in, in December. So, um, of course, Thorin dies, uh, but the, the sort of forces of the elves and the men and the dwarves uh, manage to defeat the goblins, right? So there's a battle of the five armies. So the, the, the sort of protagonists come within inches of a war over who's going to get the gold, right? So they come within seconds of starting an unjust war, and then suddenly a much greater enemy shows up, and they immediately clarify who their actual enemies are, and the men and the elf elves and the doors, they, they fight the goblins, right? And so then in the process, Thorin dies, the master of Lake Town disappears, and we learn that what happens is that Bard, who is the one who slayed Smaug, later goes and rebuilds the human city of Dale, right? Um, there's a, another man that actually uh, leads Lake Town, uh, and Dane, who's another elf, ends up being the master uh, of Erebor, the, the, the dwarf kingdom. And we learn in, in the appendices of the Lord of the Rings uh, that what happens is in a vast expanse of trade. So remember, even prior to this, although Dale had been destroyed, right, uh, and the, 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 the uh, dragon has his gold, there was still trade at the time between men and elves, right? After the Battle of the Five Armies, when Dale is rebuilt, there ends up being vast widening trade between dwarves and men. Elves. So you don't just have international trade at the end of The Hobbit, you have interspecies trade. <laughs> and it's a sign of essentially a flourishing. And it's the same thing that happens in the appendices of The Lord of the Rings after the defeat of Sauron. A widening expanse of trade. And, and this is this and uh, biological fecundity are the two symbols that Tolkien uses 
uh, as symbols of human flourishing. So we learn that, uh, that uh, Minas Tirith and Gondor, people start having a lot of kids again, right? So he has a actually very strong natalist uh, <laughs> sort of tendency in the books. But that's his sort of symbol of, of human flourishing. I think it's often missed. Okay, that's The Hobbit. And I've spent almost all of the time in The Hobbit just because that's the, the movie that we're used to. And I, what I wanted to do is to show you that even in the least developed book, the book that he wrote and it was published in 1937, before he had developed the kind of rich symbolism that you get in The Lord of the Rings, these ideas were already latent in his thinking. So it's not, it's not artificial. And you can, if you can make this case in The Hobbit, you can actually make it much more easily and much more fully if you use The Lord of the Rings. But let me just give you a couple of examples from The Lord of the Rings. Probably obvious, but uh, absolutely essential for understanding Tolkien's understanding uh, or his, his sort of political views and his economic views. Of course, the Ring of Power, right? It's, it's often, many interpreters say that Lord of the Rings is in some ways a reflection on the corruption of power. Lots and lots, I mean, we found about at least 20 authors that say that the Lord of the Rings is essentially a reflection on Lord Acton's dictum that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in fact, I think we named, called the chapter in the book uh, something uh, along those lines. But if you think about it, that's not quite right because the book is not about a total repudiation of power. Think about it, Gandalf, Aragorn, the Fellowship, Galadriel, they all exercise a form of power. In fact, they sometimes exercise violent power, right? It's actually in the book and not just the movie that Gimli uh, it actually uh, competes with Legolas to see who can kill the most, right? That's in the book. That's not just in the movie. That's not Peter Jackson. That's Tolkien, right? So there's an exercise of power that Tolkien obviously thinks is just fine. And so you need to sort of nuance that. And the way I would put it, is that the ring symbolizes not mere power. It symbolizes the desire to absolutely dominate the will of others. That's what it's about. It's not an exercise of power to protect the innocent. Because that's what Sauron and the ring are ultimately about, is they want to bring all other agents into their control. So it's a desire to dominate the will of others. And you, once you see that, you realize, oh, that's what it's actually about. It's not a, not simply about power, because the just also exercise power. Nevertheless, the just are not supposed to exercise a certain kind of power, right? So even the most noble characters, Aragorn, Galadriel, right, Gandalf, none of them are willing to hold the ring, not, not wear the ring, not even hold the ring. Uh, and Gandalf in particular, uh, when Frodo, you remember, offers him the ring, and the, the, the lines actually from the book almost uh, are repeated exactly in the movie. This is what Gandalf says to Frodo. He says, no, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible, and over me the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself, yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity, pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. So Gandalf realizes that th what he would want the power for is not to dominate people, right? Not to have great wealth or great power. It would be to help the weak. So in other words, his motivations would be spotless. And that's precisely how the ring would come to him because it couldn't come to him uh, by sort of vulgar appeals uh, to power to dominate others. And I think Tolkien here, this, without a lot of work, you can see as a reflection uh, on the reality that 
well-meaning uh, people and good intentions can often be the way that good people are led to the exercise of power that ultimately becomes their undoing. So even a good motivation, even a good motivation by someone as noble as Gandalf, who is incidentally uh, an incarnate angel, Tolkien explains somewhere else, even for him, this type of power is something that can only be denied and ultimately destroyed. Well, I mentioned something that happens at the end of The Lord of the Rings, right, that you don't get in the movies. I'm sure you all know what I'm probably referring to. It's a chapter called The Scouring of the Shire. Now, if I were Peter Jackson, I would have done exactly what he did. There is just no way. Okay, the movie already had about five endings, right? And in the theatrical version, it's over three hours long. It's way over three and a half hours long in the extended edition. You're exhausted, but if you're a fan, you're sort of liking all the endings, and you're glad it's not going away quickly. But what if the hobbits had showed up? You're just completely exhausted. You want you know, Frodo to get, get on, you know, uh, on the boat, and you've got, right, you've got Sauron, you've got his toadies, uh, and they've taken over the Shire, and you've got yet another battle, right? It, all, it seems even in the book somewhat anticlimactic. It would not have worked theatrically, and so it was actually easy to excise. It was also very easy to excise Tom Bombadil, right? And so off he goes. So maybe Peter Jackson will do just a standalone Tom Bombadil sometime or something for fans, right? Um, and so I, 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 I don't begrudge Peter Jackson this. Nevertheless, for Tolkien, the scouring of the Shire was very important. Now, what's going on here? The same thing happens, do you remember, in The Hobbit. When Bilbo shows up, remember, he's gone, gone essentially a year, and they've declared him dead, and they're selling his stuff, right? Um, and so, you know, the Saxville Baggins, everyone is, is, takes off with his things. It takes him years to get his stuff back, and finally he just ends up buying a bunch of it back uh, in order to be spared the trouble. So Tolkien, even here, he wanted to say that everything sort of this side of the consummation of the kingdom uh, is imperfect, right? You cannot ever return back to the place that you've left. Something is going to have been changed. Something is going to have tainted it. And you see this in spades then in The Lord of the Rings. Right? Just when you would expect a kind of consummation and a time for the hobbits to you know, sort of enjoy their, uh, their victory, they have to have one last battle uh, for the Shire. Right? And Sauron has cut down the party tree. Right? They've essentially created a police state, and they've done it presumably in a matter of weeks. Now notice, though, that here, this is different from the, the sense that you get in Mordor, right? This is, it, there's a malevolence in the scouring of the Shire. But what's happened is that hobbits that weren't especially evil, but they were kind of weak-willed, get sucked in, and so they end up doing the will of Sauron, who's going by the name of Sharky by this time. So it's a different kind of oppression from the kind of oppression you see in Mordor. And it's uh, widely agreed by critics that this is Tolkien's critique of England after World War II. Uh, the country, industry had been nationalized, taxation was almost 100% at certain levels. The country was just simply gray and depressed. It also had to recover from the devastation of World War II. Um, and this is his sort of vision of what happens. And it's a different kind of oppression, isn't it? This is not the kind of oppression that you'd get from a, a utterly malevolent sort of sub-demon Sauron. This is the kind of more ordinary and mundane kind of oppression. It's the kind of soft tyranny that I think Tolkien himself actually feared more than the hard tyranny that's symbolized by Sauron. And actually, he says that in many places. And I think that's why it's really important, uh, if you're going to reflect on the political implications of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, that you spend a lot of time reflecting on the scouring of the Shire. 
The reason I say that is because I actually think it's the thing that's most likely to be a danger in the 21st century. I spend absolutely no time worrying uh, that the federal government is going to nationalize the farms, is going to nationalize the factories. The reason is because we know, everyone knows it doesn't work. It's a complete disaster. Um, if, the, if the state controls and owns absolutely everything, right, then anything bad that happens in the economy, the state gets blamed. Right? What's much more appealing politically is the regulatory and administrative state in which there's still private property, there's still private sphere of the economy, but it's controlled by the, behind the scenes in many ways by the state. So then anything bad that happens in the economy, the private sector is blamed and not the state, and it becomes a pretense and an excuse for a greater increase in the power of the state. And I think that's, in fact, the kind of thing that you see in the scouring of the shire, and I think that's the kind of thing that we actually uh, should spend more time worrying about than the sort of hard tyranny of the 20th century. Some of you may know that the Lord of the Rings and Frodo in particular came uh, to symbolize for those behind the Iron Curtain uh, essentially everything that they believe they lacked. It's funny because when Westerners in the 60s and 70s were writing really bad uh, literary criticism of Tolkien and claiming that he was a Marxist and all these kinds of things, the Politburo was banning his books. He was, Tolkien was illegal in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries because they got it. They understood exactly what was going on. So as a result, there was no authorized Russian translation. Um, well, what happened is that as, as the Russians do, they're all avid readers, uh, someone made a bad Russian translation and it was mimeographed. And so for years, a bad mimeographed translation of the Lord of the Rings passed from, from Soviet dissidents until a time in 1989, which I remember because I had just graduated from college. Um, there was an amazing series of events, and you had people flooding into Red Square, and there was just this moment where people didn't know. There were tanks in Red Square, tens of thousands of people, and we didn't know how was this going to go, right? Were the tanks going to start mowing down people? Uh, nobody quite knew. And I remember in one of these moments, uh, one of these nights in which Red Square was filled with tens of thousands of people, a sign was held up. And it said, Frodo is with us. Right? That's how universal it had become. That sort of elliptical reference to this one character from the Lord of the Rings comes to stand in as a symbol of freedom for peoples that had not enjoyed it. Now, it seems to me, though, that for those of us that have maybe gotten a little bit too comfortable with those whom Tolkien calls the gatherers and the sharers in the scouring of the Shire, we ought to turn that around. And rather than saying Frodo is with us, I think we ought to ask the question, are we with Frodo? Thank you very much. Yeah, so I think there's a, I think there's a microphone around somewhere, and so if we want to take some questions, that would be great. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for presenting this uh, topic to us and talking about your book and the subject. My question is, given another area that has tried to claim Tolkien, mm -hmm. the environmentalist movement right. especially, they point to the existence of the old forest on the right. borders of the Shire, Fangorn, the seeming abhorrence of destruction of those forests, right. and the fact also that Aragorn almost, or King Elisar, seems to almost preserve the Shire, not allowing men to go into it. 
A lot has been made that Tolkien is not an environmentalist politician, but he's very much a conservationist or even preservationist. Right. Uh, um, what do you think we, of that? We have a whole chapter on this because it's actually quite complicated. And it seems to me that if someone's going to claim Tolkien for an idea that, in fact, he doesn't believe in, it would be this one. Uh, it would be sort of modern environmentalism. Now, Tolkien, uh, as I, I mentioned there briefly, the symbol, other than the widening of trade that he most uses as a symbol of human flourishing, is having children, having lots and lots of children. In fact, later, we learn in the appendix of the Return of the King, after the sort of glory days of Gondor, then they return and, and are, are decadent again, and they quit having children, right? So that right there tells you that insofar as a kind of misanthropic thread is present in modern-day environmentalism, Tolkien would have absolutely opposed it. Now, yes, he absolutely loved nature. He was not, he didn't much especially like the sort of mechanization that he saw uh, of, you know, sort of mid-20th century and early 20th century industrialization, certainly in Britain. He himself had a a personal experience of a place that he enjoyed as a child. Later when he returned, it had been sort of torn down and a bunch of ugly sort of suburban development had gone in. And so I would say you could certainly say that he was a conservationist and you could certainly say that he liked nature. But in my view, liking nature doesn't entail the details of the environmental movement. It just means that you think nature is a good thing. You think that it's a creation and it ought to be valued. But he also had, I think, a, a fairly realistic understanding of that. So remember, the Shire, for instance, it's agrarian, but they're not living in the jungle, right? It's, they're not leaving it be. In fact, the Shire is very precisely tended with, uh, with hedgerows and those sorts of things. A lot of people think that Tolkien was actually anti-technology, and he had, I would say, some slight Luddite tendencies. He did not like the internal combustion engine, but he lived in Oxford and didn't really need a car, right? And I, so I could kind of understand that. When you think about it, the vision that he, he sketches in The Lord of the Rings, though, it's not anti-technology. Yes, the, he doesn't like the technology of Sauron, but Sauron, his use of technology, right, was essentially a raping and pillaging, right? So rather than using something as a resource, he just simply sort of rapes and destroys the area. Now think about this. Who has the most advanced technology in Middle Earth? No? The elves. The elves are able to make food, right, that will sustain you with one bite per day. The elves make the best swords. The elves have all these things. And people think, well, it's sort of magic. But in fact, you read The Lord of the Rings, they don't think of it as magic. It's a part of nature. What they have done is they have actually developed a technology that's in a sort of natural harmony with nature. So it's not that they sort of left the forest to go on its merry way. What they've done is they've developed biomimetic technology. And so Tolkien, though, he would not have, of course, known of that trend because it's just now sort of coming into his own, uh, symbolizes in the elves uh, a sense that uh, the best technology is the technology that understands nature best. And he, and he sort of incarnates that in the elves. So you've got to look at all the sort of details. But uh, in fact, Tolkien said some nasty things about people that would, you know, we would now refer to as environmentalists. So uh, my view is somebody can be a can love nature and believe in preservation and be a conservative Catholic and totally oppose the environmental movement. You can do all those things at once. Uh, you said previously that um, <clears throat> uh, Tolkien was opposed to allegories. Right. Um, 
And then he said, well, as a philologist, uh, he doesn't change the word sheriff that much to um, describe. Say, say the last part. Uh, he didn't change the word sheriff that much. Sheriff. No, sheriff. exactly. Uh, to describe sheriff. the people that keep uh, the flock in line. Right. Uh, do you think that's semi-allegorical, or do you think he was more proposing how he saw fit to govern a small village environment? That it has to do with the origin of the word sheriff, actually. And so anybody that studies philology at all knows you know, the sort of Darwinian picture of language is that it starts out really simple and then it gets more complex over time. All languages do exactly the opposite. They start out really, really complicated and they get simpler over time. If you want to know what complicated is, try to learn Icelandic, right? Isolate a Scandinavian language on an island thousands of miles for hundreds of years and that what you get is Icelandic. Um, uh, languages that uh, interact simplify over time and you get English, Right? where you don't have to memorize all those complicated cases and endings. Uh, and so what he's doing is he very often uses words that are etymologically related to other words. And so in that case, it's sheriff. And I, I, I had read, but I, I'm not remembering the details, but I think our word sheriff comes from sheriff. Uh, and so he's just essentially locating that word uh, earlier in time. He incidentally knew, we wouldn't say fluent because these languages mostly, mostly weren't spoken, but at least a dozen Northern European languages. Uh, the Elvish languages, of which there are two, are based on Finnish, which he taught himself. And so um, the, Tom Shippey, who's the most prominent Tolkien scholar probably uh, in the world until recently was at St. Louis University, he was a philologist and held Tolkien's chair uh, at Oxford after Tolkien did at one time in his career. And Shippey uh, does an amazing job of sort of analyzing the way in which Tolkien's love and understanding of language uh, became manifest in these books. Because of that, it's unlikely that a book exactly like The Lord of the Rings or at that level of depth and complexity of The Lord of the Rings will ever be written again, uh, simply because the discipline of philology uh, is mostly defunct. And so unless somebody's going to spend 40 years studying philology on their own so they can try to imitate The Lord of the Rings, it's not likely that, uh, that we'll have anything quite like it again. In uh, both The Hobbit and The it's on. And both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings books are epics. Um, they both end with the eagles yes. coming in and, and saving you know, the respective parties. Right. What do you think Tolkien was doing with that? Um, it, it, remember, it, it's funny. This is a place where lots of literary critics have, have criticized Tolkien, and they've claimed that he, this was a deus, deus ex, ex machina, right? That, um, okay, Tolkien got himself in trouble with the narrative, and then he has the eagles show up. The problem is, is that we know Gandalf has sort of relations with uh, with, with the beasts. And so um, if you think about it, Tolkien, um, this is another thing that he's been criticized for. In fact, a contemporary American scholar who's a Christian wrote a book recently and criticized Tolkien for not treating the wolves nicely because the wolves are all bad guys, right? But they're not normal wolves, obviously. And so, but if you look, Tolkien, I mean, he believed very much he had a very incarnational theology. And so the the beasts were a part of the story. And so you get beasts, some of whom are sort of neutral, right? Like the ants are sort of neutral, right? And in fact, they don't want to get involved if they can help it. Uh, then you've got beasts that are more malevolent, the wargs, right? But for all we know, they were norm originally regular wolves that were sort of distorted and mutated, right? And then you get the eagles, which actually ally themselves with the good guys, with the protagonist. And they do appear in very important moments, right? In The Hobbit, they save the, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the characters from almost certain death uh, and, and fly them away. And then The Lord of the Rings, 
they show up at the very end, and it's not quite decisive, but they play an important role. Uh, and so people often have said, well, you know, this whole story was kind of silly. When they were there at the Council of Elrond, why didn't they just call the eagles and give them the ring and say, fly this to Gondor, right? Now, it doesn't work, and I think Tolkien actually anticipated this, because think about it. Right? You still had the ring wraiths with their flying dragons at that point. They weren't going to fly 500 miles into Mordor to get to, you know, uh, to get to Mount Doom. So it wouldn't have worked until the time in which all of Sauron's attention is on this battle. Then right, the, el the, the eagles come in at the last minute and become decisive. And then once Sauron and the ring wraiths and all the evil minions are dead, then the eagles can go and they can save Frodo and Sam. They could not, in fact, have done that uh, until Sauron had been destroyed. And so I think that this is a, it's not an attempt for him to sort of, you know, s solve a narrative problem that he set himself so much as his desire to include the beast, to include the animals in the action. I was wondering also about the environmentalist kind of idea, um, just to try to understand more how his love of nature, which is obviously such a big part of his books, mm -hmm. and the Shire, of course, how that's different. And it seems like maybe it's a little bit more rooted in love of that nature than just any nature. Like with modern environmentalism, it's like Mother Earth, and it could mm -hmm. be Earth in the US, it could be Earth in Russia, it doesn't matter, it's all about the actual stuff of the environment, but for, I imagine, like, my impression of the hobbits and probably for Tolkien, it's they love the Shire, you know, mm -hmm. so it's their land and they want to protect it because it's probably because it's based in farming, too. Right, it's a farming community, and so there's things they don't do, but remember Gondor, right, that's not an agrarian community, that's a stone city built onto the, into the side of the mountain, right? Uh, Tolkien doesn't give us the impression that, well, Gondor is somehow substandard because of that. He presents it in all its grandeur and glory as well. I think the simplest way to put it would simply be that for Tolkien, uh, nature is a creation. Uh, human beings are persons, right, are central to that creation. In fact, as a Catholic and a Christian, Tolkien believed human beings were the one thing in all of creation that was made in the image of God. So the human person and persons in general figure prominently and centrally in Tolkien's understanding of creation, whereas they tend to either not figure prominently or actually be the problem in much modern environmentalist ideology. So I would say that's the key difference. Tolkien might, you know, he might support the Endangered Species Act or something like that. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about the sort of broad ideological things. We have time for one more question. Okay. Thanks, Jay. Okay. That was really great. Um, I think about the scouring of the Shire a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, long after I read Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, I read to my daughter a book that I didn't read myself as a child, which was The Wind in the Willows. Oh, yeah. And it just seems like, you know, it's the same kind of thing when they take over Toad Hall. That's exactly right. And this is um, what's weird is that early critics, are t the, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit were almost universally panned. Critics, in fact, one critic we quote in the book when The Lord of the Rings came out said, these are books that some people might enjoy reading once, but these will not be books that anyone will read more than once. I mean, it's got to be the stupidest and most wrong book review ever written, right? <laughs> and so now the books are consistently in the English-speaking world. Whenever polls are taken, 
number two and number three of the best books of all time, just behind A Tale of Two Cities, which I totally don't get, but that tends to be how it goes, right? Um, but he was, one of the things that critics would say is that, well, it's, it's sort of infantile. You know, all, the, most of the good guys don't die. Everybody gets back home safely. It's not really adult fiction. It's like, what book were they reading exactly? The main character, Frodo, is never able to be settled again, right? Uh, they have to retake the Shire, which is never the same again. Um, and so I think someone, what happened is that certain critics that are smart, they get what's going on, that this guy's a Catholic, and it's prominent and important to his whole understanding of reality, and they hated it, and they just simply reacted to that and didn't read just the kind of basic details. But any really serious book is going to be like that. It's, a, it's this sort of awareness of the fall and of sin, uh, that there is goodness, that ultimately good triumphs over evil, but evil has an effect that can't just simply be wished away. And so you, get, you definitely get that to the wind of the willow in a more sort of comedic form, kind of like the end of The Hobbit. But the end of the Lord of the Rings, I have to say, when I first read the book, I think it was the seventh grade, I hated that. I wanted to rip that chapter out of the book. Uh, but it's absolutely important for what Tolkien was trying to do and for his understanding of reality. And so I think even though it's not in the movies, it's important to talk about it in a context like this. Well, thank you very much, and I'll, I'll take questions afterwards. Thanks. <laughs>